Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, 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 episode 49. This is Alan Averill. This is Agitators Anonymous. Another week in paradise, my friends. How has it been for you? It's been glorious for me. Indeed. Well, episode 49, nearly at the big 5-0. What can I say? Um, I, like I said last week, um, I won't go on to season two until, um, well, all of this somehow seems to be coming to a close. So, Strap yourselves in for the next 50, 100, 150, 250 episodes. Or maybe we'll just keep running for years. Who knows? Well, anyway, so after my trifecta of gloomy, I've been using the word trifecta and I'm not really sure if it's the right word, but my triumvirate, my triptychon, my triptych of um, somewhat gloomy, I suppose, and pessimistic political episodes in the last three I'm going to change tack completely and talk about music, talk about subcultures, countercultures, what inspired me to take up arms in the name of heavy metal, um, what inspired me to do a fanzine, to join a band, all those kind of things. Because a couple of very uh, back-to-basics things happened to me over the last week. One was a documentary and one was a rehearsal. And they sort of brought back to me, I suppose, um, that feeling you had when you were a, a teenager full of um, rumbunctious energy ready to try and take on the world uh, with our heavy metal or, you know, joining a band or wanting to join a band or getting involved in tape trading and fanzine stuff and all that. Because when I sat and thought about it, I thought, well, you've had this almost 30-year career, the last 20, 20-odd 20 of which have been 
touring, have been traveling, have been traveling the world. Now that does hang in the balance. That's a discussion that's going to come. I'm doing a YouTube video about where the music industry might be. So I'm so there's certain sec sections of that conversation that I don't really want to get into because it, I'm going to end up doubling up, tripling up on my uh, discussions of things, even though you've probably heard me say the word biometric passport about 20 times or authoritarianism about 25, 30, 40, 50 times. And in fact, enough times that there probably should be some sort of swear jar or tip jar or some sort of forfeit for keeping on with the same mantra, repeating the same thing over and over again, which is, of course, the definition of insanity. Uh, and we could say that we are at the threshold of that if we are not already inhabiting its vast uplands. Anyway, every subculture needs active and passive people. Episode 49. Why was I thinking about that? Well, first of all, I remember being a teenager, you know, the first rehearsal I ever went to, the first band I was ever in. Uh, I think we were 13. I was 13. It was in the first year in Mount Temple Comprehensive, which is where I went to school, which subsequently well, not subsequently, which, strangely enough, was the same school as you 2 went to, um, amongst other virgin prunes, that kind of thing. I think some members also went there, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and back in the day, that school had a sort of non-uniform mixed, um, mixed policy, um, boys and girls, which was quite rare in the South, in the Republic of Ireland, because Ireland, still to this day, as I understand, has the greatest... Um, number of uniformed schools, which I suppose was designed once upon a time to um, allow kids, the kids who had less than the kids who had more, to um, be insignificant to each other. I suppose it was a way of masking poverty, but it was also, let's be honest, a sign of obedience to the church, who our state have handed or had handed over the education of children to um, in a post-famine um, Ireland. What am I talking about? I thought it was going to be a bit about music. Well, it is, it is, it is, it is. Bear with me. So where I went to school was a non-uniform school. It was um, music, I suppose, being part of the music room, the music society, being taught music. There was a sort of slightly bohemian culture that was engendered within the school. At the time, I remember being 13 and going to school wearing a bullet belt and a Metallica Damage Incorporated t-shirt, having long hair, um, being encouraged to take the instruments down off the wall. We had one particular music teacher who was very uh, encouraging and enthusiastic to anybody who wanted to book um, the music room on a Wednesday, on Wednesday from two to four, for example. Um, there was a set of drums, a little amp, electric guitar, bass guitar. And you were encouraged to book yourself in and start a band, basically. And that very first band we had, um, I can't remember, I don't think we even had a name, but we tried to play Blitzkrieg Bop. We tried to play Ramones. I tried to get them to play Venom. We tried, we just banged around and crashed around and had no real understanding of what we were doing. But the seeds of being active within a scene were sort of sown in my subconscious then. I was like, like a little, that light bulb moment, that eureka moment. It just went off in my head and I went, this, this is what I want to do. This is um, something I want to be a part of, being active, trying to be in a band, trying to be part of a scene. Um, I'd already at 12 or 13 descended, um, descended the steps into the basement and begun to evolve from Iron Maiden and Judas Priest into Venom and Slayer. And by 87, 88, eight, end of 88, we were... 
there was echoes of death, pestilence. Um, I started to tape trade, that kind of thing. But I, I, I put the horse before the cart there. I'll get to that. The reason that I've been sort of spurred on or inspired to maybe talk about this a little bit and change tack from the usual um, foreboding gloom of the last few podcasts is that I actually uh, have been, you know, well, don't tell the authorities on me, but have been uh, a rehearsal in front of a few people. And it felt very strange and it felt very um, like reconnecting with something you did when you were a teenager. When we were a teenager, we used to go and sit in each other's rehearsals um, of other bands. There was an Irish band called Morphosis who were kind of like the the sort of um, the kind of cool uncles of our nascent teenage death metal scene. They were a bit older. They had proper gear, proper instruments. And we would sit in the corner of their rehearsal room drinking cheap cans of cider and watching them play. And you sort of lived and learned with that. You learned things about pedals, about guitars, about tone from them. Um, no one had any gear, no one had any money. And so people used to come and sit in those early primordial rehearsals in 1991, 92 or 93. And I think this was a kind of a way for us to be able to meet, um, share in, I suppose, a sh the feeling of, being part of a, a scene in its infancy and being part of something, a sort of communal experience, which 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 is what being part of the virgin territory, let's call it, of a young scene is. And everyone is enthusiastic and wants to show up and be part of everything. Everybody wants to do a fanzine. A few of us rehearsed some covers, some Celtic Frost, some Venom, some Slayer. In front of a few people, it felt like going back in time 30 years to when we used to do the same thing. And it, in a way, I suppose, emotionally, romantically, maybe made me reconnect with the idea that scenes die if there isn't active people to keep, um, you know, pumping some blood through the veins of any scene. And it sort of took me back to being a teenager a little bit once again. And so... That was the first inspiration for what I'm going to try and discuss a little bit in this podcast. The second, oddly enough, was just one of those YouTube journeys that you find yourself on. Um, and YouTube threw up in my algorithm, Husker Du, the fastest band in the world. Now, I must admit that as a teenager, the name Husker Du, um, I filed under shit I didn't like, like mud honey and that kind of thing. The name put me off because all I was interested in was Satan and studs and nails and um, it just had to be as fast as possible and as dark and evil as possible and I had no time for that stuff I did indeed love Minor Threat um, that kind of thing but Husker Du no didn't sound right to me however here we are 30 something years later the tagline the fastest band in the world sort of irked my speed metal sensibilities and I clicked on it and it was fascinating account of the early Minneapolis hardcore scene I suppose from 1978-79 up to about 84-85 loads and loads of bands that I remember tape trading of whether it was Final Conflict um, loads and loads of bands but it was a fascinating journey through how a scene just literally burns super bright and then dies off um, a three or four years later and that really was how that hardcore scene evolved at that time whether it was Minor Threat Bad Brains um, Agnostic Front that kind of thing now admittedly that wasn't exactly my sort of music I think at 13 or 14 I'd figured out that I liked Bathory and Merciful Fate more than Black Flag in fact 
if some of you have been listening to the podcast or paid attention to, I suppose I wrote a column about this, that there was a day when a friend of mine brought down Black Flag, uh, Black Flag album, I can't remember which one, and I brought down Sodom in the Sign of Evil and all my hardcore friends looked shocked um, as their jaws dropped and hit the floor at how uh, sonically volatile was Sodom was and literally just kicked Black Flag in the shins rather severely. Um, yeah, Sodom gave Black Flag some severe kicking when it came to extremity and aggression that afternoon, I think I remember. Um, now, of course, some of you may disagree with me because Black Flag is, of course, the seminal influential band, influential hardcore band. No problem, of course. And I think there's something really interesting about that early hardcore scene is that it seems to have inspired so many people to go on to document it. Even in that small YouTube journey when I watched this documentary about Huskadoo, who admittedly I started to really actually quite like after about 15, 20 minutes. And I thought, God damn, I must, must go and find some of their records because this is a band I neglected to listen to in 19, in the, in the olden days. And those early songs sounded great because I love the energy of that super aggressive hardcore. But how is it that so many people within the punk and hardcore scene went on to document their scenes in ways that the metal scene seemed not to? There aren't really many um, glowing documentaries about the um, friendship and scene politics that happened at the beginning of the early nascent um, heavy metal or new wave of British heavy metal scene. It seems to be far more disparate. I would hazard a guess that the, for example, new wave of British heavy metal scene of the early 80s was maybe a bit more working class. And I don't think those people went on to write for magazines or form media companies or anything like that. Like maybe some um, educated um, college going uh, punks and hardcore people did who were able to document their scene in a much more, um, I think, glowing light, um, a much more interesting way maybe than uh, the heavy metal scene ever did. Anyway, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. I'll get to that. The first ad read www.hatecouture, H-A-T-E-C-O-U-T-U-R-E, 616.com, hatecouture, 616.com, hateful yet tasteful clothing, loads of really cool zippies, board shorts, all sorts of other paraphernalia, serial killers, tyrants, lots and lots of tasteless stuff that will offend your nearest and dearest. If you mention A-L-A-N, you will get free shipping, which these days is quite worth quite a lot because shipping has gone up and up and up if you're dealing with your local post office and all that kind of stuff you'll know exactly what I'm talking about so www.hatecoutur616.com get to it but it reminded me of my own um, journey at the time because there is a moment where you hit about in your early teen years and you want to be in a band you want to be in a room with other people making noise you want to be in this sweaty little space all pushing together for the same thing it feels like being in a a little gang a little gang and this is where you flick the switch between between being passive and active and for me that switch was flicked somewhere in about somewhere when i was about 13 or 14 years old and i thought this is it this is what I want to do. And at 16, I answered an ad, um, which was up really only for about an hour in the local heavy metal shop in Dublin for um, singer needed for, uh, you know, North County Dublin heavy metal band, etc. And it seems like I was the only person who rang up 
and got the job by the default of having very long hair and a rotting Christ T-shirt at the time, I think. Something like that swung the deal for me. Um, but fine were the margins, fine were the margins. But what it reminded me of was that initial journey where everything seemed absolutely exciting. And I remember being in a record shop um, and this is something that can't be replicated online anymore. It can't be replicated by, I mean, I look, I've railed against the anti-human nature of remote living and the way we're all being corralled into these places online. But nothing can quite explain that feeling of going to that record shop when you were a teenager and standing around outside with other kids, trading tapes, trading cassettes, getting the new demos of X band or this, that, and the other, forming bands, forming fanzines. And one day I picked up a fanzine called um, Splatter, just some kind of cartoony, slightly punky death metal fanzine and brought it home. And that was the first time I thought, oh, you can do this. You can write to these bands. Um, and sure enough, fired out 10, 20 letters. And the very first fanzine I ever did was maybe in 1990, taking part in another one. And, you know, the typewriter broke half the way through. So I decided the best course of action was to try and uh, write like a typewriter. Who notice? Who would notice indeed? And all those early replies were from pestilence, thanatos, immolation, dorsal Atlantica, all those kind of things. I think I've mentioned them before in the podcast. But it was that early, I suppose, when I look back on it, influence also of a little bit of the hardcore punk DIY scene. There was um, there was a promotion company called Hope Promotions in Dublin in the late eighties, and they used to do a lot of Saturday afternoon one euro two euro or well, not euro god damn it two pound um two punts uh, punk shows that me and a few friends used to go to um especially during the afternoon which was really good if you were underage because um you couldn't stay out at dublin at 10 11 12 at night on a saturday there was no way home anyway uh, most people don't realize this but dublin didn't really have any late night culture back then um, at least not for a 14-year-old who lived in the suburbs. But we used to go to the afternoon shows, and um, that was where I saw lots of old punk bands, whether it was Citizen Fish, Oi Polloi, Gorilla Biscuits, all that kind of thing, which sort of took completely tied into my um, my early, I suppose, love of bands like Ripcord, uh, Snuff, Youth of Today, that kind of thing. Snuff, there's a strange band. Yes, indeed, I saw them too. Um and this whole documentary reminded me, just pushed me back into that time of when you were so, so passionate about wanting to do something within the scene um, of finding like minded people and. And how finding your own space, finding your own place to be there, strangely enough, there used to be like a, a scout hall in Malahide, which is it will mean nothing to you if you're uh, outside of Dublin. But it was a small little scout. You know, the scouts were like a sort of um, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, you know, it was a thing where teenage kids went on a Saturday afternoon to see local thrash bands. And there has to be some starting place for people, place for people to meet. And I suppose this is what sort of obviously depresses me or makes me feel a bit worried about the future of subcultures once all of this, whatever this does, whatever this is, you know, you can listen to the last three for my thoughts on what it might be, but how do they survive once they come out of um, this? Because 
I think that many small businesses, of course, venues, etc., are going to be pushed right to the edge. So how is there a place for teenagers to come and meet? I mean, I had a discussion with somebody involved in the Irish music industry and I said to them, hey, you realize that in Dublin city centre, there is no rehearsal rooms anymore um, in Cork City either, as I understand. There's nowhere for somebody with a guitar who's 14 or 15 to go and go, right, we're going to go in and bash and crash around like I did. Um in school and then we booked our first rehearsal room in the city centre, got dropped in by our parents with our little crappy guitars and stuff. There isn't any way for kids to do that. Are they supposed to do it all online? Because if so, then I think subcultures or however they used to represent and maybe I'm being romantic about it, but they are um, going to find it very, very difficult to survive. Um, but the whole thing reminded me of my own journey. To, to stand playing in a room again in front of half a dozen people and also reminded me of how much we've missed just a year without gigs, a year without the communality of um, being able to express what your scene means, what your music means to you, no matter how small that thing um, of going to that local punk show, which in Dublin would have been in the, the lower deck um, or, you know, in the Bohemian Social Club or something. That was you know they had their rehearsal rooms they had their place to go to and how those things are now under incredible threat and how do they happen again does any music rise up from the ashes of this again it, maybe it's just my um, my middle age speaking but it seems to be a very difficult thing to imagine that these things are able to survive in those senses so what did I do? I used to, I used to make a fanzine, um, writing to all these bands and the joy in sitting at home for taking hours and hours of cutting out tiny little logos, making the layouts, pouring for ages over um, what little flyers you put into it, folders and folders and folders of flyers marked A to Z, hundreds upon hundreds of letters every morning waiting um, standing at the end of the garden waiting for the postman to see if he would arrive before the bus to school so you could get that 5, 10, 15, 20 letters in the post for my first fanzine, the first primordial demo, all those kind of things. Wanting to be part of a scene was something um, incredible, to be honest. It was uh, something that can't be replicated online, like I said, but the, the, but the feeling that once you got those letters in the post, oh, you had the newest letter from somewhere from Peru, Chile, these... Um, incredibly far-flung places that seemed like you would never get to, but you were actively part of a structure. And watching this um, documentary, especially with the Minneapolis hardcore scene, there were some incredible characters in it. You have maybe you had like one person starts a Wednesday night club, um, a DJ night, you know, where they're playing, um, I suppose, garage or psych rock with some punk rock, um, with some early heavy metal, and it attracts all the people who feel completely alienated from everywhere else, who don't want to be around the disco people or the mainstream people. It's like a, a safe haven for those who don't belong. And that's one of the things that I really fear may disappear because I don't know if young people have the same inclination to those things because I do wonder about the importance of music in that sense or of being part of a subculture. If everything is um, fragmented online, is it the same? Or do I just sound like an old dude who doesn't understand that things are exactly the same? I don't know. I don't know. But it, again, in our own scene, it took, um, it took some of us the 
Saturday afternoons sitting in other people's rehearsal rooms were kind of our place where we could go um, as half a dozen or a dozen people trade tapes because we were too young to get into bars in Dublin. Um, and so you would hang around on the street outside the record shops. You would gather in the in the square in the centre of Dublin around the central bank and trade tapes, trade shirts. Of course, you'd get into scrapes and get into trouble. But that was the nature of just being, um, I suppose, a teenager who was at the time outside of that whatever mainstream culture was. It's hard to say, really, because there were so many different kinds of teenagers, whether they were punks, there were cureheads, goths, smithsheads. Um, there was everybody seemed to have some identification with some form of musical subculture. And it really was a strange thing to be back in the rehearsal room playing old covers that I'd been playing 20 odd years ago to people. And that sort of very simple transfer of joy um, to be in a tiny space, albeit one that you're not really supposed to be in. Um, but what that DIY, do-it-yourself ethic of the time said was that it, it very much, it said to those who, um, you didn't need any particular musical talent. You didn't need to be able to play like 70s prog rock bands or you didn't need to be that musically talented. I Certainly, I would never count myself as being particularly musically talented. I was always a butcher of a bass player and I always did all right with whatever talents I had singing or whatever. But what I lacked in talent, I made up for an enthusiasm and dedication and focus and absolutely relentless energy of trying to push towards being in a band, towards being in a scene. And that moment where the very first time you hear all those bands, you get your first cassettes in the post or the very first time you hear Slayer and Iron Maiden, I knew that was it, you know, that this is your life now, basically. Um, for better or for worse, you're locked into this now. But what that whole underground thing at the time is it, it, it gave people who had no, it didn't exclude people from based on their musical talent. In fact, it didn't exclude really on any level because it was just mainly just poor working class kids who were just trying to have some sense of communion with each other. Second ad read is pretty simple one. It's metalblade.com. 40 years in the business. What are you going to order? It's really for North American people listening. And I can see by looking at the stats of the countries of people who listen to me, USA is right up there at the top with the most amount of listens. Um, so, yeah, if you're in North America and you want to order the new Cannibal Corpse album, you just need to put in the promo code, uh, the promo code AA podcast and you will get 10 percent off your order. So you can order Primordial, Dread Sovereign, Fate's Warning. Cannibal Corpse, the world is your heavy metal oyster. Get to it. But every scene needed, let's say, for example, mathematically, six to 12 active people within it put on a show by a, a band passing through um, or who would put on um, a small show for the couple of teenage bands that there were and um, who would sneak people in to find the bar that would allow people who were maybe 16, 17, 18 or 17, 18, 19 on the cusp of being allowed to find the bar in the back room that would let them put on the show and not hassle everybody. You needed someone to make the flyer, somebody to do the fanzine. And strangely enough, if you look at the scene in Dublin, which I came from, of course, um, many of the bands or the people, whether it's Dublin Metal Events, whether it's Sentinel, whether it's Baden Incarnate or Crook on all the bands, these are the sort of original of that early 90s species. 
the people who were active within the scene, who were willing to sort of focus their goals and take up um, trying to move things along. Now, of course, it's a long time ago now and many, many things have changed. But you sort of knew the wheat from the chaff in the sense of who was going to be, who who in the scene you knew was going to try and do that Saturday afternoon show that 40 people could go to. And maybe then um, some of those people were inspired themselves to go out and form a band, to start to, to pick up a guitar, to maybe do a fanzine, to try and get involved in some way. Because the traditional way that the music industry evolved or operated excluded people on those terms and so the entry level enthusiasm was what was needed not necessarily musical talent and certainly in that Minneapolis scene there's some great scenes of um, I think some woman who ended up in Babes in Toyland and again another band that meant nothing to me but her house was like a she built like an under basement venue in her house and people would Minor Threat played in her house to like 50 or 75 people and bands would stay around and sleep in the house for a week and DOA would pass through and all this kind of stuff and amazing those old pictures are really inspiring of those you just see they're just the crazy energy and joy um, unburdened joy on uh, the faces of young people in the sense of communality of a scene that was outside of the mainstream. And that's um, something that resonated deeply with me, reminded me of the same thing we were doing in 1990, 1991, that kind of time. Because it can easily just be that, that first time you pick up that fanzine, that first time you go and see a local man and you go, I could do that. I think I could do that. And then you try and then you do and it sticks with you and it changes your life. And I suppose even though hardcore itself for many, it, what was interesting was in the documentary, many people um, kind of left the hardcore scene after three or four years. They seem to burn out and move off into other things because I suppose the one dimensional form of the music, which was just very, just super aggressive, um, well, it passes you by as you pass into middle age. And that is maybe where things differ a little bit for heavy metal. I think heavy metal maybe has the scope to move sideways a little bit. Or especially if you were involved in the black metal scene, it wasn't so hard in a couple of years to have adopted other things, brought other things into the music, whether it was neoclassicism or neo-folk or goth or all this all kind of other stuff. But the one trick of aggression of, of a minor threat only could only probably really exist for a couple of years and then it burns out and burns the people out but for those couple of years it's absolutely glorious and then another generation comes along afterwards and takes up picks by you know kind of like digs up the arms that were buried somewhere and you know scrapes off the rust and goes back out to war and so and so it made me think quite acutely about why it was that within the metal scene less people documented that early metal scene than maybe the punk hardcore scene and I would probably say that attached to the early punk hardcore scene is a certain form of activism, whether it's political, social, cultural, because it's very much based in, I suppose, um, socio-economic reality, whereas heavy metal was maybe escapism. Um, and I think probably more working class in general, but was based in a kind of escapist um, idealism. Punk and hardcore attracted more people who were probably more willing or more um, suited to after their after college going into, as I said, um, media, into film, into documentary making, into writing. Certainly that punk 77 to 80, 77 punk um, became eulogized beyond all 
and even twisted a little bit into the social cultural wedge by people, you know, as they say that the, all the people who said they were at the Sex Pistols in '77 in in Manchester who weren't really there, and you know, the mythology grew because those people slipped into be, being journalists, they slipped into being filmmakers, they slipped into documentarians in a way that I think many probably people around the Roundhouse maybe in, you know, the New Wave British Heavy Metal Club in 1980 are probably more likely to have been brickies and plumbers and electricians and working class people, in a sense, who weren't writing about um, how much of a social wedge Iron Maiden were, when in fact Iron Maiden were far more working class than The Clash or whatever. Um, but that's kind of neither here nor there, really, when you're talking about the um, burgeoning enthusiasm of youth and what inspires you. Now, if we return to the kind of um, the title that I've given this, every subculture needs active and passive people. Well, what I mean by that is that every scene needs six or maybe let's say half a dozen to a dozen active, passionate people who are pushing forward with trying to bring bands through, trying to create nights, um, DJ nights. Maybe they're finding clubhouses, the rehearsal spaces, all those kind of things, trying to build something of the scene. But of course, they need the passive people, people who are just more than happy to just listen, who just want to go and see a show, you know, m pick up the seven inches, pick up the demos. In their own way, they are active. But maybe, maybe I should divide that into layers of active and passive. But once those active people die away, they're not really dragging the passive people in their slipstream anymore. And that's how many scenes flounder and in truth die off because every scene needs those people. Now, does that mean at some stage when the realities of life catch up to your um, scene making, it makes it an awful lot more complicated? I think this could definitely be true. And maybe the if you looked at the movers and shakers, I hate that phrase, but within the early heavy metal scene, how many of them lived a life after that where the heavy metal was a shield to avoid responsibility or the realities of life? We could say that if we were being uncharitable. We could say that. And one of those reasons for that, I suppose, is that being part of a scene, being part of a subculture almost is like that, um, you know, that spinal tap thing where they say that I feel like a preserved moose or something like this. Well, there's a reference. huh? But what it does is it encourages, I suppose, people to keep a hold on to an element of their youth that mainstream society, at least from somebody who's been within that subculture for so many years, would seek to um, crush or would seek to, you know, strip from you that sense of wonder, that sense of excitement, that sense of exuberance, that sense of focus and energy into music, into a scene that wasn't necessarily economically driven. You know, many people would ask me before Primordial ever got paid for anything, well, how long are you doing this? And well, you have a CD out, you must be making some money. And if, when you said no, and they'd, they'd look at you like, well, so why are you still doing it? Well, you know, there's a question. Why, why were you still doing it? Because all you were doing it for was was that passion, that experience, that adventure, that excitement, that exuberance. And these are words you probably haven't heard me use too often in the podcast for the last six, nine, 12 months, 10 years, 20 years since the late 70s, I guess. Anyway, yeah, but that's it. Is, thou, is being part of a subculture then about avoiding responsibility in a sense? And people pass through it many times. You know, you knew people who were super active 
and then they just passed to the suburbs and that was it. That was their moment, their six, 12, 24 months. I never understood that because I always felt I was going to be there to the bitter end, um, you know, which is why I have the same words tattooed on my neck. But however, you know, the idea that some people just come in, shine brightly, fade away and move off can in a sense be a beautiful thing sometimes. There's too much, maybe there's too much nostalgia and romance involved in, you know, being a lifer. Um, that some people, are, are, you just have to accept. Come in, come out like the tide. And that's all right. But you need those people in any scene. Any scene, you know, any DJ night where, you you know, somebody has arranged and seven dudes show up and just sit in the corner, um, that scene is going to die. You need, you need... How can we say you need wallflowers, you need pretty wallflowers of either gender, either description, either whatever to pad out to be part of the scene, if even for a short space of time, because it makes the scene, I suppose, more attractive, more human and more willing for people to get involved in it. Nobody just wants it only to be some sort of um, small, little, super exclusive club, even though the people at the heart of it. It's it's in within your nature as a young person to try and I suppose be stubbornly elitist about it or um, aggressive about you shouldn't be here you don't know that first Hellhammer demo or whatever that's the nature of being a teenager I suppose is trying to divide yourself between that active and passive sense but as you get older especially in my thirties I realized oh we need everyone within this even if you like Electric Wizard but you've never heard Black Sabbath no problem that's fine. You don't need to know everything of everything. You don't need to be an absolute completist, which may sound odd considering, um, I suppose, to the casual, to the casual um, passive person who engages in most scenes, they do feel slightly alienated by those who have the more underground shirts or all of the scene politics that I suppose once you hit a certain 24, 27 age group, a lot of people kind of wonder, what, what what purpose does all this serve? Because we need to get into the seriousness of life. Um, we need to get to the burbs and start accepting responsibility. So, so what happens when or if all this dies down? Um, I mean, walking around your own city or town, you've probably noticed that an awful lot of small venues are on the verge of collapse. They're probably going to disappear, at least in Dublin. I don't know where people are going to be able to play. What are the restrictions going to be? Are we going to need all the other stuff I've been talking about for the last few podcasts? Are we going to need our biometric passports to gain access to anywhere? Could it be that the form of oppression is going to be um, a great stimulus for new underground scenes to rise up? Because people are going to be angry, they're going to want to pick up a guitar and they're going to want to plug into some of these old modalities of life that are, they're being told are legacy systems and have no resonance anymore. What do you need to play a gig for? Can't you all do it online? Um, as I said before, I was talking about the Irish Arts Council who don't seem to have made any allowances for gigs in their um, you know, next year or two future. They seem to be all about building sound stages for streaming and forcing us again onto accepting this anti-humanism, corralling us into these, um, you know, um, well, like, look, the truth is anti-human uh, procedures or anti-human way of living, which, of course, I very much stand against. And if considering 
um, even my, I suppose, nostalgic, romantic, emotional connections to some of the things, like I said, this documentary reminded me of my own early scene. And then also just rehearsing in front of some people, being able to just play and make some noise in front of some people in a room, because that's what you started being in a band for, to be in a room with other people. You didn't start a band playing in a band to be sitting in front of a screen as a one square on a screen, you know, with a headset on, um, just playing remotely, releasing a song online and watching numbers move up and down. I mean, you know, that to me is more being a statistician or a mathematician than a musician, in a sense, especially all you're left to do is watch numbers. What you did, what you started a band for was to be in a room with other people, to share in the emotional transaction of making music. And then you look at something like the Arts Council Missive and you wonder, how have you missed this? What are you going to give teenagers who want to pick up the guitar? What, you're going to tell them, hey, here's your streaming soundstage, can you all um, stand X far apart, play, we'll film you, there you go, there's your stream now, send that out to the world. Really? Seems a terrible, terrible waste of the impulse of humanity that is being creative is art is music it's one thing to be a sculptor or a painter and um, be able to just work on your own but it's different being a musician because there's a sense of communality a sense of emotional transaction with an audience that is part of being a musician otherwise you would have what you would have sat at home and just learned the spanish guitar for your own enjoyment now plenty of people do that it's no problem but even still the most isolated spanish guitar player probably wants at some stage to sit on a stool and play to some people. Sometimes I walk up and down the canal uh, where I live and there's an old guy who sits with a little amp and he just plays, has his gloves on when it's cold and he just plays. And every time I cycle by or walk by, I give him a thumbs up and a few quid. Um, and I get it. He has to play. Well, that's how I somehow have imagined it in my head or imaginary conversation um, where I, you know, I imagine he has to play because it's within him. And I feel the same sort of thing when it's been removed from you. I said it flippantly to a friend. Um, being in a band without playing live is kind of like, can you imagine somebody said to you, hey, you can never have sex ever again. All you can do is watch 1980s porn. Not even modern porn, but 1980s porn. And that's it. You'd be pretty. <sighs> Wouldn't be such a great um, future for your libido now would it but that's kind of how it feels and i'm not exaggerating a sculptor can sculpt in isolation on their own and but at the same time they probably at some stage um want to have an exhibition now what do i know about sculpt sculpting sculpture not much but i did watch a documentary about a man called giacometto giacometti um the other day and giacometti yeah, an interesting man. But yet at the same time, even he had his scene around him, which was like, I guess, Paris in the 1920s and 30s. He may have sculpted alone, but his his what is he was working on was still documented by photographers written about. He had exhibitions. There was, I suppose, well, no, I don't I don't suppose I know because I was part of the documentary, but. Even he had a, his scene around him, his other painters, other sculptors who would meet and discuss the politics of the time, the art of the time. Um, there was collectors. There was still a scene. So even every I tried to say this before is that the the creation of something artistic is like dropping a stone in still water. 
And from that stone hitting the water, there are ripples. And so let's say, for example, with Dread Sovereign, if I look at my guitar here to the left of me and I pick it up and I go, you know what, I think I got a riff in me. That riff can become the song that then somebody in the studio records, somebody masters it. It then goes to the label. People in the label are working there. They press it. It goes to the distributors. It goes to out into the world. Well, you know, within and then there's people who order it through mail order, get it um, on vinyl. They put it on their record player. Somebody's delivered it to them. That's the ripples first off. Then the next ripples are you get offers for shows, for tours. You're getting on a plane. You're getting in a van. You meet the driver. You sit with him and talk to him about what football team he likes. You meet the caterers. You meet whoever it may be. You meet all of the people involved in that human transaction, which is from that moment you pick up the guitar and make that riff, ends with maybe at the merch stand at midnight chatting to some people who've bought a few shirts. And you've had... It's the agency of movement that's involved in being creative that this whole situation has literally destroyed. Um, and it cannot be replaced by just, can't you just do it online? No, you can't. There is no replacement for it on those terms. And that's what it is. It's the ripple effect that um, moves out and out from that dropping of that stone that eventually hits a shore somewhere and then you start again with another riff or another band or some something else, some other adventure, some other exercise. Because if you are creative, uh, this is what you need to do. And I'm not even saying you need to be an artist, because certainly looking back at those early um, punk hardcore documentaries, were they artists in a way? Yeah, sure. But they were it was more that they were inspired by the scene around them, inspired by the subculture, inspired by inspiring people like whoever it was who made that first fanzine that I picked up. It inspired me, but they were inspired by someone else who inspired me to first pick up a guitar. I, I don't really too sure. But certainly when I answered that ad to join what became primordial, I think a week after my 16th birthday, I was inspired by being part of that nascent death thrash scene. And I wanted to be part of it somehow. And it didn't matter that I had no talent, couldn't play, couldn't sing. All those things didn't matter. And in this strange new terrain we're moving into, um, I really worry that those things are under threat because how does anyone, how do people meet? Is it all going to be online? Because if so, then it's, again, it's it's giving in to the anti-humanism um, at the very heart of this. And, you know, when people have said to me, oh, look, there'll be underground shows again, um, they'll just have to be under the radar. And I go, well, what radar is that? Is that the radar of your phone? <laughs> to be ridiculous, you know, to be very straight about it. A room full of 50 people, all with phones in their pockets. That means nothing is under any radar, realistically, does it? Anyway. So, my friends, the end of episode 49 is just a ramble about punk, about hardcore, about heavy metal, about being inspired, about getting in a room again to try and play to some people because it's been sorely missed. And we have to, we have to consider that um, as human, you know, monkeys hurtling around this ball of dirt before we shuffle off this mortal coil we do have inalienable rights and like I've been talking a lot about liberty, about freedom, about sovereignty about humanity in the last um, few episodes of the podcast this one is just a base simple level one about getting in a room, making some noise with people and I really feel that that is under threat because you have your kilometre radius, you have your bubble 
you have all of these other things um, that could potentially make that very, very difficult. Just being in a room um, with somebody else playing a song to some other per people. And if we aren't careful, that is something that um, will slowly disappear. Where is the space to do it? Certainly not in an empty Dublin is somebody going to say to me, hey, you know this empty building? You have a really good idea. Here's, a, here's, here's an actual worthy grant from the Arts Council. Redo this, do this place up, you know, put in a proper rehearsal room um, for, for kids to use, for people to use. Um, like in Brussels, this huge big 40, 50 room complex that bands were able to take out long leases on, three or four bands a room and trusted to do it themselves. Or shouldn't every town and city in, in Ireland have a 100 to 500 capacity venue that is free to book for bands from within Ireland that is non-profit with, on a volunteer basis? with people learning the craft of dealing with bands like there is in Holland and there is sometimes in Germany. Shouldn't that be, shouldn't that exist here? To be insulated from the bubble of economics? Yeah, it, of course it should be. But who do you speak to? Because every time, everything they're talking about is trying to corral people into, um, are you sure you can't do this on Zoom? No, we can't do it on Zoom. Or maybe I'm just speaking to the wrong people. Well, I'll keep you posted as my inquiries keep moving with stealth. Anyway, my friends, episode 49, like I said, I did three pretty heavy um, podcasts that were pretty serious. So the next ones are going to be about music. They're going to be about, um, I'm going to try and make them a bit more, bit more positive, a bit more upbeat, a bit more, I don't know, what could you say? Maybe it inspires you to, to do a podcast or who knows, I don't know. But one thing's for sure, um, Huskadu, I'm sorry. I'm going to go and check out those early records that I ignored way, way, way back. And I'm going to dig out my um, Gorilla Biscuits in Utah today in Minor Threat. And I'll give Black Flag the um, the fifth, sixth, um, how can I say, chance to impress me again. It happens every five or ten years when I go, right, I'm going to sit down and do it. Um, I'm going to pull out my Dead Kennedys records and get back into it all. And who knows, it, I've been talking about making a compendium of all my old fanzines, which seem to be lost somewhere in the ether of moving houses um, over the years. But that's something I really would like to do because I'm talking about something and there's no real illustration for it if you're listening to me. But I'll try and put up some pages if I can find them online as part of this. If not, it is really something I should do before um, they all go the way of the dodo, I suppose, as we all will eventually. Well, my friends, episode 49, every subculture needs active and passive people. So make a choice. Which are you? And if you feel like your local scene is heading to the wall, you're going to have to get involved and find ways of trying to save it. Otherwise, there ain't going to be no scene. All right, my friends, episode 49, every, every subculture needs you on some level. So metal never bends. 